You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Moses preached. The Old Testament prophets preached. When Jesus came, He preached. He told the disciples to preach. And they preached. And the disciples passed on to those who came after them to preach. For instance, Paul told young Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul said to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of the Lord Jesus who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and be ready out of season. That means always be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. You're always ready in season and out of season to convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching because the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. But instead, they will heap up for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. They will scratch their ears. And men will follow them. It's always been preaching. That was not only what the apostles prescribed, it was what they practiced. If you look over at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, you don't have to turn there, but the book of Acts ends with this statement in verse 30 and 31, that Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and he was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That's how Acts ends. Acts ends with Paul preaching unhindered. And Acts begins with a sermon. And there are sermons all the way through the book of Acts. In fact, there are no fewer than 19 Christian speeches or sermons in the book of Acts. 19. Eight by Peter, one by Stephen, one by James, and nine by the Apostle Paul. The book of Acts is filled with sermons, which you're going to see as we go through it. So today you're going to get a sermon on a sermon because 25% of the text of the book of Acts is made up of speech. It's what these men taught. It's what they said. It's what they preached. It's how they preached. It's the content of their messages. So today's sermon is a sermon on a sermon. And I'm going to preach on Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Now I want to remind you of what the stage is. It's the day of Pentecost. The disciples of apostles have gathered together. They are probably somewhere near the temple or just outside the temple. They're in a room. And the Spirit of God comes upon them. They're waiting. They're not praying for it. They're not expecting it. They're just waiting for the Lord to fulfill what the Lord promised He was going to do. And the Spirit comes and it's accompanied by those three phenomena. Do you remember what they were? They heard something like a loud rushing wind. It didn't say they felt the wind, but they heard it. There was an audible phenomena. Then there was a visible phenomena where they saw, as it were, tongues of flaming fire coming to rest upon each of these men. And then they began to speak in other languages. Recognizable, intelligible, articulate, translatable human languages. And they begin to tell the mighty works of God. And Luke says that all of these people gathered together. Now by this time, they're probably out in the temple courtyard, someplace where you could get in excess of 3,000 people gathered together. Because later on in Acts chapter 2, it says that as a result of this sermon, 3,000 people got saved. So you have out in the temple courtyard someplace this large gathering of Jews from all over the then known world. 
and they have heard the rushing wind, and they have gathered together, and they hear the apostles speaking the gospel and praising God in their native tongue. And do you remember what the two reactions to it were? Some said, what could this mean? And others said, they're just full of wine. They're full of sweet wine. Verse 12 and 13. Some of them, their their conscience is pricked. They are brought to an understanding that there is something supernatural going on here and they're interested in it. And others just simply dismiss the supernatural altogether and attribute it to the work of drunkards. They're drunk. They're full of sweet wine. That's verse 13. Others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. Now we're going to look at Peter's response to this and his sermon which begins in verse 14. And his sermon goes all the way to the end of verse 36. He's a long-winded preacher. It probably would take me a shorter period of time to read his sermon ten times than it is going to take me to preach on his sermon once. But his sermon goes all the way to the end of verse 36. And we're going to take it in two parts. Today we're going to look at what he says about the death of Christ, and then next week we're going to look about what he, look at what he says about the resurrection of Christ. So today we're going to focus on two things that Peter emphasizes. And the first thing that Peter does is he presents to us an explanation for what they're seeing. The first Christian sermon begins by correcting a misunderstanding that people had. A lot of times sermons have to start that way. You begin in your introduction by saying, now this is what some people have taught, this is what some of you think, this is where some of you are at, and it's wrong. That's what Peter does. And so his very first sermon begins by correcting a misunderstanding. What was their misunderstanding? We hear these men speaking to us in languages, and they said they're drunk. And Peter says in verse 14, Luke records, he took his stand with the eleven, he raised his voice, and he declared to them, men of Judah and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. Now, Peter just sort of briefly refutes the whole idea and really lets us know just how absurd that charge was. The Jews reckoned time from 6 a.m. They counted the hours. The third hour of the day would have been what? 7, 8, 9 a.m. Right? These men aren't drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Peter's basically just showing them how absurd it is. Even your full-fledged card-carrying drunkard is not drunk by 9 a.m. They're not even awake yet. Let alone back into a cycle of drunkenness and able to do something like this. He just brushes it aside. These men are not drunk. It's 9 a.m. Check your watches. It's first thing in the morning. They can't possibly be drunk. But then Peter attributes what they're seeing to that which was foretold in the Old Testament and he quotes the prophet Joel. And that's where verse 17 comes in. Verse 16, Peter says, this is what was spoken to the prophet Joel. And Peter quotes him. Read the quotation with me. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my Spirit on all mankind. Mark that in your mind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my Spirit. Second reference to that. And they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now Peter quotes Joel, and Joel's prophecy has mostly to do with this coming day of the Lord. 
You'll notice that uh, Peter makes reference to it here once in this text. It's also uh, referred to other places in Joel's prophecy. His, the theme of his prophecy is this coming day of the Lord. And it's a day of judgment. Joel's prophesying a judgment that's coming. And he gives to that judgment the title, the day of the Lord. It was a common Old Testament phrase that they used to refer to any time that God moved in judgment. When He moved in judgment upon a nation, or upon a group of nations, or upon peoples, or upon sin in general, it was referred to as the day of the Lord. But Joel has specifically in mind not just any kind of judgment. He has in mind a specific judgment that would be coming upon all the nations. And this judgment would come upon all the nations just prior to God instituting and bringing to pass the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. A reign of righteousness where Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies about sitting on the throne of David and ruling with a rod of iron and everything that the Old Testament portrayed of the Messiah where His enemies would be made His footstool. All of that was yet to come. And Joel tells us that before this blessing upon the nation of Israel, there would be a judgment upon all the nations, and that judgment is the day of the Lord. But before the day of the Lord comes, at this time of this judgment, prior to that, there will be something significant, and it will be the outpouring of God's Spirit. And that's the point that Peter's making. Now, he quotes that in context, and so he has in there all of Joel's references to the phenomenon. Did you notice them in verses 18 and 19 and 20? The phenomenon that happens to people, verse 17, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and even on my bond slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour forth my spirit. There's a lot of stuff there that we don't have record happened at the day of Pentecost. So the question is, was Peter misunderstanding what Joel was pointing forward to? Because he quotes Joel, he says, this is what Joel spoke of, that the Spirit was going to be poured out and it would be accompanied by all of these phenomena. But yet not all of these phenomena occurred. Especially the ones down in verse 19, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Now those things didn't happen at the day of Pentecost with the pouring out of the Spirit. But you know, Scripture reveals that those phenomena are yet future to us even in the book of Revelation, when God judges all the nations, there will be blood, there will be all of these signs in the heavens and signs on the earth. All of that's still future to us, but what is past to us is this initial pouring out of the Spirit. But there's still something before this day of the Lord comes, there is still a pouring out of the Spirit that will result in all of these phenomena. In other words, when the Son of God reigns and sets up His kingdom, it will be accompanied with a ministry and a filling and a pouring out of the Spirit that's unlike anything seen even at Pentecost. And that's yet future. So that what you and I have now is just simply a glimpse of what is to come. We have the first fruits. We just get to taste of what eventually is going to come to us and what eventually we're going to have as a result of the Spirit of God being poured out in full measure at this time of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus. Peter quotes Joel and he says, Joel spoke of a day on which God was going to pour out His Spirit. This that you see is that. But there's much more that is yet to come. This is just a partial fulfillment of it. But this is the type of stuff that Joel was predicting when he said, I will pour forth My Spirit on all mankind. And it will be accompanied by these phenomena. 
That's the day of the Lord. And that's the explanation that Peter gives. But Peter's explanation raises a question for the Jews. And he's a good preacher. And so Peter's going to answer their question before they even have a chance to ask it because he knows what they're thinking. If this is what Joel predicted of the Messianic kingdom, the Messianic age, and if what we are seeing is the glimpse of what is to come when the Messiah reigns, then the Jews would be thinking, is the Messiah here? Did He come? Or is He about to come? That would be their thinking. Joel said, before the Messiah had set up His kingdom, there would be a pouring out of the Spirit. And then Peter says, this is what Joel spoke of. And they're thinking, well then you're telling me that the Messianic age is here, or it's beginning, or it's just about to begin. And so where is the Messiah, and who is the Messiah? And that's what Peter answers, beginning in verse 22. He answers their question, you killed him. You killed him. You want to know where your Messiah is? You murdered him. You hung him on a cross by the hands of godless men. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Not only does Peter offer to us an explanation, but Peter gives to us and describes to us an execution. It's the execution of Christ. Where's your Messiah? You hung Him on a cross. Men of Israel, listen to me. This Jesus whom God attested to you. Now, they would be thinking in their minds, you have to think like a Jew. The Jews were thinking, our Messiah is going to come. He's going to deliver us from the bondage of Rome. He's going to set up a kingdom here on earth. And He's going to reign and pour out all of His blessings upon the nation of Israel. That's what our Messiah is going to do. And now Peter says, you killed your Messiah. You crucified Him. And a Jew is thinking in his mind, well, doesn't that sort of cast doubt upon his Messianic credentials? If He's the Messiah, how can He possibly be a victim? They couldn't understand that. How could our Messiah die? How could our Messiah be crucified and hung on a cross and murdered? Surely that's not what the Old Testament says about our Messiah. And so what Peter's going to do is he's going to argue that Christ is the one who came to redeem them from their sin. And he is going to demonstrate his messianic credentials by alluding to two things. Really three things. The resurrection, but that's next week. This week, he's going to allude to two things. First, the miracles. He says, this man was attested to you. He was demonstrated and declared to you by God by the miracles and the signs and the wonders that God did through Him in your midst. You saw them. You heard them. You witnessed them. You were there. You saw it. And you're culpable for it. And Peter says this all was a demonstration that Jesus Christ is who He said He was. He healed the sick. He healed the terminally ill. He raised the dead. He made the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. He cast out demons, walked on water, produced a coin in a fish, multiplied bread and fish. And He did all of those miracles. And all of those miracles demonstrated and showed to these Jews who were here listening to Peter that He was who He said He was. Do you remember when John the Baptist was in prison? 
And he sent his disciples to Jesus with a question. And what did they ask him? Are you the one? Or are we to wait for another? You see, because if you're the Messiah, your chief spokesman, John the Baptist, is in prison. That doesn't sound very messianic. And maybe John is expecting to lose his head at any moment. And he's kind of wondering, are you it? Or have I been led astray? There's a little bit of doubt in John's thinking there. Are you him or should we be looking for another? And what does Jesus say, say, respond to that as evidence of his messianic credentials? Go back and tell John what you see. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the mute speak, I cast out demons. I'm the one. And the Jews should have understood this. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, the works that the Father has given me to do to accomplish the very works that I do testify of me that the Father has sent me. John 10, if you do not believe the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that I do so that you know that I am with the Father. And you know, they never argued against His miracles. They could never deny that an individual had been healed. They could never deny that a resurrection had taken place. They could never explain away His miracles. They just wouldn't believe them. After Lazarus was raised from the dead, the chief priests and the Pharisees got together and they said, what are we doing? This man's performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all the people are going to believe in him. They didn't start circulating a rumor saying, oh, that raising of Lazarus thing, that was just a parlor trick. It's just a charlatan's trick. They could not refute the miracles. They saw them. They witnessed them. They knew they were genuine. But look at the hardness of man's heart. They crucified him anyway. And they knew what he did was a demonstration of who he was. And they knew who he was. And they killed him willingly. And Jesus said, the works that I do prove that I am who I say I am. And they killed him. And Peter says, A man was attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Remember the miracles. He's arguing for the messianic credentials of Christ. You saw the miracles. You were there. You saw them. You heard them. You witnessed them. They were done in your presence. They were a demonstration that He is your Messiah. So what happened to him? What about this death thing? Doesn't the fact that He died on a cross prove that He wasn't the Messiah? Doesn't the fact that He died as a common criminal, cursed, hanging on a tree, demonstrate that He is not the Christ, that He's not the Son of God? No, quite the opposite. The second thing that Peter is going to argue for his Messianic credentials is not just the signs and wonders that he performed, but the fact that his death was part of the plan of God. Look at verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. This man was delivered up. That is a word that's only used once in the New Testament and it's used right here. And it means to be betrayed or handed over to your enemies. This man was betrayed. He was delivered up. He was handed over to his enemies. By what? By accident? By freak of nature? By sheer chance? No. Peter says it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was all part of God's plan. God planned that His Son would die. 
He determined it. He predetermined it. He set that plan in motion before He ever created anything. That was the plan. Is there any chance that Christ could not have died? Could that have happened? And just in case you think that this statement is just a slip of Peter's tongue or a slip of Luke's record for us, look over at chapter 4, verse 27. And this is Peter praying. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. Peter prays, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Is that hard for you to swallow? That that was part of the plan of God? And that it was predestined to happen? When did He do that? Was the cross of Christ some last-ditch stopgap measure thrown in there at the end to try and save as many people as God could save? No. When was the plan of salvation put in motion? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. God's grace and His purpose was granted to us in Christ before eternity. Before time began, I was chosen. Before time began, grace was given to me as the recipient of that. Paul says, from all eternity, that was the predestined, predetermined plan of God. His foreknowledge, His foreordination, His plan set it in place. Christ was delivered not by accident, not by some last-minute mental hiccup of a betrayer named Judas. None of that. Christ was delivered up because that was the plan of God. And He ordained that plan in eternity past before He created anything, before He spoke anything into existence, before man fell, before there was sin, before there was a curse, before there was anything. It was determined that the Son would come into the world to shed His blood for the sins of His people. That was the predetermined plan of God. That doesn't get any clearer than that. If you try and make out the cross of Christ to be some accident, you really rob God of His glory. He wrote the story before He ever started the story. That's what was going to happen. It wasn't possible for Christ not to die. Acts chapter 17, Paul went into the synagogues and demonstrated from the Scriptures that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. It had to happen that way. Why? Because God knew it? Did, was God just a good fortune teller? Did He know it was going to happen? Sure, He knew it was going to happen. Why? Because He's a good fortune teller and He rubbed His little crystal ball and said, man, if I send my son into the world, this is likely what's going to happen to him. None of that. He knew it was going to happen because He planned it to happen just like it did. And He caused it to happen. And He set the wheels in motion. And it's not that God just plans the big picture and leaves the fulfillment of His purpose up to chance. None of that. Even the details of the crucifixion were planned and prophesied by God. The nails were part of the plan. The scourging. The sweating of the blood. The ripping of His flesh. The plucking of His beard. The beating of His face. The crown of thorns. The robe. All of that. It was all planned. All of the last details. 
It was God's plan for him to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It was his plan that it would be Judas that would do it. It was God's plan that that money would be returned and that a field would be bought. Every last detail of his death, down to the soldiers at the foot of the cross casting lots for his clothing, was planned and prophesied even by God. It was all part of the plan. Every last detail of it. How did God know it was going to happen? He planned it to happen. And it did. And every last detail was part of His predetermined, predestined, preordained plan before eternity started. Now you might be thinking what the Jews were probably thinking in Peter's day. So let's just answer your question before you have a chance to ask it. If God planned it, if He predestined it, if He preordained it, and if that was part of the plan from eternity past, then God is responsible for it. God bears the burden for that sin. Man can't possibly be responsible for it if God has planned it and if He has predestined it. Then how can man be held accountable or responsible for what God predetermines must come to pass? So it's not our fault that the Messiah was crucified, Peter. That's all God's fault. God planned it. He predestined it. Does Peter leave any room for that? Look at the end of verse 23. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Not for one moment does Peter let his listeners get away from their culpability or their guilt. Who planned it? Who predestined it? Who predetermined that that should happen exactly as it did? God did. Oh, is He guilty then? Who's responsible? Peter says, you nailed Him to a cross. You bear the guilt of your sin. You bear the responsibility for what you did to Christ. You did it through the hands of godless men and there were two culpable parties. The Romans and the Jews. And the Jews orchestrated it. They planned it. They determined that it was going to happen. They willed it to happen and they followed through with the execution of the Son of God. And they used godless men, the Roman soldiers, to nail their Messiah to a cross. But that doesn't expunge them from their guilt. Because Peter says, although it was planned by God, although it was predetermined by God, guess who's responsible? i got bad news for you, he says. It's you. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. So in that one statement, you have these two wonderful truths. The absolute total sovereignty of God and the utter and complete responsibility of man for what he does. And Peter does not minimize either one of those to try and reconcile them. He just simply states them as true And they both are. It was predetermined by God that it should happen. And those who nailed Him to a cross will be held culpable and responsible for what they did. How can that be? I don't know. But it's true. God is sovereign. And man is responsible. Listen to Jesus. Luke chapter 22. Jesus said this, Indeed, the Son of Man, that's Himself, is going just as it has been determined. Who do you think Jesus ultimately saw as the one behind all of the events of His life? The Son of Man is going just as it has been determined, Jesus said. It's been planned. It's been predestined. It has been determined. This is my life. This is why I have come. I'm coming to do this. It's going to happen. The Son of Man is going just as the Father has determined that it should go. Then Jesus said this, but woe! To that man by whom he is betrayed. Woe to Judas. 
Who bear the responsibility for that act? Judas. But Jesus said, it's just as it has been determined from eternity past. My friends, that is, that is a beautiful truth. And, and Peter is not trying to somehow bring those two things together so that you and I can understand them. He just states them as true. God has predetermined that it should happen. But woe by the individual for which it happens. Do you remember Joseph? Remember Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers? Yet at the end of the whole thing, after Abraham, uh, after Isaac dies, and Joseph has that confrontation with his brothers, what does he say to him? What you intended for evil, God meant for good. What those wicked Romans and wicked Jews intended for evil, God intended for good. It's the same word, intended. They both intend the same thing. Joseph's brothers willed something with a wicked, sinful, rebellious will. And they will be held responsible for what they did. But the guiding lamppost for Joseph through all of that was that God is sovereign in this. That what they are willing with a wicked will, God is willing with a pure will. So that God uses sinful man to accomplish His every last purpose. And He does so without violating man's will, without forcing man to do it, and without removing man's responsibility. That is a sovereign God. And so what the Jews willed with a wicked will, God willed with a pure will. It was the plan. And He used those men to accomplish that plan. They did so willingly, not against their will, and they bear the responsibility for their sin, and God never does. Now let me bring two things out of this teaching between this whole plan of God as it pertains to the death of Christ. Because next week is Resurrection Sunday. This week, or this coming week, will be what would be the last week in the life of our Lord Jesus. He comes into Jerusalem, say today on Palm Sunday, and by Friday He is crucified. Horrible, vicious, wicked death. And I'm sure that all of the disciples at the time were running scared and through their minds was running this idea that everything was out of control. The, the whole plan had gone awry. Here was the Messiah. He had done the signs. He was supposed to bring the kingdom to pass and, and here He is hanging on a cross. And I imagine that they were probably just going frantic in their minds trying to reconcile all of this. But now Peter understands, just seven weeks later, folks, this was all the plan of God all along. It was no accident. And the fact that it was the plan of God really highlights two things. So let me give these two things to you. The fact that it was the plan of God highlights the grace of God. Because it was no accident. And God knew and planned before Christ came what was going to happen. And He knew and He planned before Adam sinned what was going to happen. And He knew and He planned before He created the world what was going to happen. He planned all of that. So look at the magnificent grace of God that knowing what would happen and planning what would happen, He would go ahead and create anyway. Knowing that He was going to offer up His Son as a sacrifice for sin. You see, if in your mind you think the death of Christ was some accident, some random event, or something that God was desperately doing as a last minute attempt to save a few people, if that's how you perceive the death of Christ, then you rob God of all of His glory. Because 
it really minimizes God's grace. Rather, you and I are to understand this was the plan. Before eternity, back in eternity, before time even started, I was on the heart of God. And He planned to send His Son to die for me. It magnifies, intensifies, glorifies God's grace in what He did. Because He didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. The second thing is it really highlights our own sin. Now it wasn't you and I that nailed Christ to a cross. It was really our sin that put Him there. Although I didn't hold a nail and I didn't hold a hammer and neither did you because we're 2,000 years removed from it. It was our sin, which we are not 2,000 years removed from, that hung Him on that cross. It's my rebellion and my lawlessness and your rebellion and your lawlessness and your wickedness that you bear responsibility for and my wickedness that I bear responsibility for that hung Christ on that cross. And the fact that God sent His Son to die for us magnifies and intensifies our understanding of sin. What, how shameful must my sin be if it required Him to be shamed so much in order to take that sin from me? Isn't that true? How hideous my sin must be that it would require the sacrifice of an infinite person to pay the price for my sin. And it did. And so the understanding that this was on God's heart before He ever created anything, it really intensifies our understanding of our own sin and our own responsibility, and it magnifies forever the grace of God. Knowing that He was going to send His Son, He didn't not create. He didn't decide to not do any of that. He didn't even decide to let us perish in our sin, which we all deserve. And if God had just washed His hands of the whole human race and said, I'll have nothing to do with you, I'll destroy all of you and let every last one of you perish, He would have been completely just to do so. But He didn't do that. Instead, He sent His Son to die on a cross for you and I. So that if we believe in Him, trust in Him, He gives to us eternal life on that basis. And I'm thankful for that grace. And what a magnificent grace that is. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.